good evening. How fabulous to begin with an applause, and I'm not even the Poet Laureate, so thank you very much for that, my brief moment in the sun. I'm Robin Marsak, I'm the director of the Scottish Poetry Library, and it's an enormous pleasure for me to welcome you to the Edinburgh International Book Festival this evening, and without the sound of rain on the roof. But I know that even with the sound of rain on the roof, you would be excited because it's going to be a wonderful evening. The evening has been sponsored by The Big Issue, and as you know, The Big Issue is a charity that helps the homeless to find their own homes. And it's a great charity to be associated, I think, with Carol Ann Duffy, because she's a poet who understands big issues. She's not afraid of them, and as Poet Laureate, she's certainly already shown that. Of course, it's great to have a woman as a Poet Laureate. I personally, as an inhabitant of Glasgow, think it's a bonus to have somebody born in Glasgow as a Poet Laureate. But the main thing is that we have a brilliant and adventurous poet as Poet Laureate. Will you join me in welcoming Carol Ann Duffy? Thank you so much. I'm fed up with being a poet, so I'm just going to do a few jazz numbers this evening. <laughs> See you in the bar. This reading is dedicated to one of our own folk, Catherine Lockerbie, who is here tonight. About 25 years ago, I wrote a poem called Weasel Words, and I never thought I'd write that kind of poetry again. I wrote Weasel Words because Margaret Thatcher, in a phone-in, was accused of using them. And when she said she didn't understand the expression, it was explained to her that weasel words are words empty of meaning, like an egg which has had its contents sucked out by a weasel. So this poem is very much based on the, the style of the House of Commons in England. Weasel words. Let me repeat that we weasels mean no harm. You may have read that we are vicious hunters, but this is absolutely not the case. Pure bias on the part of your natural history books. Hear, hear. We are long, slim-bodied carnivores with exceptionally short legs, and we have never denied this. <laughs> Furthermore, anyone here today could put a weasel down his trouser leg and nothing would happen. <laughs> weasel laughter. Which is more than can be said for the ferret's opposite. You can trust a weasel, let me continue. A weasel does not break the spinal cord of its victim with one bite. Weasel cheers. Our brown fur coats turn white in winter. And as for eggs, here is a whole egg. It looks like an egg, it is an egg. Slurp. An egg. Slurp. A whole egg. Slurp. Slurp. 
much for <laughs> politics how it makes of your face a stone that aches to weep of your heart a fist clenched or thumping sweating blood of your tongue an iron latch with no door how it makes of your right hand a gauntlet, a glove puppet of the left, of your laugh a dry leaf blowing in the wind, of your desert island discs hiss, hiss, hiss. Makes of the words on your lips dice that can throw no six. How it takes the breath away, the piss. Makes of your kiss a drop pound coin, makes of your promises Latin, gibberish, feedback, static, of your hair a wig, of your gait a plank walk, how it says this, politics, to your education, 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 shouts this, politics, to your health and wealth, how it roars to your conscience, moral compass, truth, politics, politics, Politics. I think the um, official inquiry <coughs> into Iraq is, is about to begin. And um, I wrote this poem with that in mind. And it's dedicated to um, the lovely Adrian Mitchell, whom many of you will, will remember. Big ask. What was it Sisyphus pushed up the hill? I wouldn't call it a rock. Will you solemnly swear on the Bible? I couldn't swear on a book. With which piece did you capture the castle? I shouldn't hazard a rock. When did the president give you the date? Nothing to do with Barack. Were 1,200 targets marked on a chart? Nothing was circled in black. On what was the prisoner stripped and stretched? Nothing resembling a rack. Guantanamo Bay, how many detained? How many grains in a sack? Extraordinary rendition, give me some names. How many cards in a pack? Sexing the dossier, name of the game? Poker, gin rummy, blackjack. What's your understanding of shock and awe? I didn't plan the attack. Once inside the mosque, describe what you saw. I couldn't see through the smoke. Your estimate of the cost of the war? I had no brief to keep track. Where was Saddam when they found him at last? Maybe hold under a shack. What happened to him once they'd kicked his ass? Maybe he swung from the neck. The WMD. You found the stash? Well, maybe not in Iraq. <laughs> poems I'm reading are poems I've written this year. And this is a poem about a, a hero, Atlas which seems to me to, um, to fit some of the, the problems we, we will face this century. Atlas. 
Give him strength, crouched on one knee in the dark with the earth on his back, balancing the seven seas, the oceans, five, kneeling in ruthless, empty, endless space for grace of whale, dolphin, sea lion, shark, seal, fish, every kind which swarms the waters, hero. Hard too, heavy to hold, the mountains, burn of his neck and arms taking the strain, Andes, Himalayas, Kilimanjaro, give him strength. He heaves them high to harvest rain from skies for streams and rivers. He holds the rivers, holds the Amazon, Ganges, Nile, hero, hero. Hired by no one, heard in a myth only, lonely. He carries a planet's weight, islands and continents, the billions there. His ears, the last to hear their language, music, gunfire, prayer. Give him strength, strong girth for elephants, tigers, snow leopards, polar bears, bees, bats the last ounce of a hummingbird. Broad-backed in infinite bleak black, he bears where earth is, nowhere, head bowed, a genuflection to the shouldered dead, the unborn's hero, his loves lift. Sometimes the moon rolled to his feet, a gift. And I wrote a poem recently for the two last very odd survivors of the First World War. And <clears throat> John here is going to help me out with a couple of poems tonight, and, and this is one. And I quote Wilfred Owen in the poem, Last Post. In all my dreams before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. If poetry could tell it backwards, true, begin, that moment shrapnel scythed you to the stinking mud. But you get up, amazed, watch bled, bad blood run upwards from the slime into its wounds, see lines and lines of British boys rewind back to their trenches, kiss the photographs from home. Mothers, sweethearts, sisters, younger brothers, not entering the story now, to die and die and die. Dulce, no. Decorum, no. Pro patria mori, you walk away. You walk away, drop your gun, fixed bayonet, like all your mates do too. Harry, Tommy, Wilfred, Edward, Bert, and light a cigarette. There's coffee in the square, warm French bread, and all those thousands dead, shaking dried mud from their hair and queuing up for home. 
Freshly alive, a lad plays Tipperary to the crowd, released from history, the glistening, healthy horses fit for heroes, kings. You lean against a wall, your several million lives still possible, and crammed with love, work, children, talent, English beer, good food. You see the poet tuck away his pocketbook and smile, if poetry could truly tell it backwards, then it would. To read um, some older poems now, I'd like to read some from The World's Wife, which um, I wrote to sort of celebrate all the stories that I'd grown up with from myth or fairy tale or popular culture or the movies, fiction, pop music. And I wanted to not only celebrate, but perhaps retell or um, subvert these stories. And the very first one I wrote was Mrs. Midas, which was always my favorite as a child. But I did become uneasy as I grew older at the thought of having been Midas's lover. So this poem is in the voice of Mrs. Midas, and it's after he's been granted his wish by the gods that everything he touches turns to gold. And the poem's set a little later in the year from now, and Mrs. Midas, who's a very good cook, is in the kitchen, everything's going well, she's having a slug of cooking wine. And she looks out through the kitchen at the end of the garden, she sees Midas up to no good. Mrs. Midas. It was late September. I just poured a glass of wine, begun to unwind while the vegetables cooked. The kitchen filled with the smell of itself, relaxed, its steamy breath gently blanching the windows. So I opened one. Then, with my fingers, wiped the other's glass like a brow. He was standing under the pear tree, snapping a twig. Now, the garden was long and the visibility poor, the way the dark of the ground seems to drink the light of the sky. But that twig in his hand was gold. And then he plucked a pear from a branch. We grew fondant d'autumn. And it sat in his palm like a light bulb. On. I thought to myself, is he putting fairy lights in that tree? <laughs> he came into the house. The doorknobs gleamed. He drew the blinds. You know the mind. I thought of the field of the cloth of gold and of Miss McCready. He sat in that chair like a king on a burnished throne. The look on his face was strange, wild, vain. I said, what in the name of God is going on? He started to laugh. I served up the meal. For starters, corn on the cob. Within seconds, he was spitting out the teeth of the rich. He toyed with his spoon, then mine, then with the knives, the forks. He asked where was the wine. I poured with a shaking hand a fragrant bone-dry white from Italy, then watched as he picked up the glass, goblet, golden chalice, drank. It was then that I started to scream. He sank to his knees. 
After we both calmed down, I finished the wine on my own, hearing him out. I made him sit on the other side of the room and keep his hands to himself. <laughs> I locked the cat in the cellar. I moved the phone. The toilet, I didn't mind. I couldn't believe my ears how he'd had a wish. Look, we all have wishes. Granted. But who has wishes granted? Him. Do you know about gold? It feeds no one. Aurum, soft, untarnishable, slakes no thirst. He tried to light a cigarette. I gazed, entranced, as the blue flame played on its lucius stem. At least, I said, you'll be able to give up smoking for good. <laughs> Separate beds. In fact, I put a chair against my door, near petrified. He was below, turning the spare room into the tomb of Tutankhamun. <laughs> you see, we were passionate then, in those halcyon days, unwrapping each other rapidly like presents, fast food. But now I feared his honeyed embrace, the kiss that would turn my lips to a work of art. And who, when it comes to the crunch, can live with a heart of gold. That night, I dreamt I bore his child, its perfect oar limbs, its little tongue like a precious latch, its amber eyes holding their pupils like flies. My dream milk burned in my breasts, I woke to the streaming sun. So he had to move out. We'd a caravan in the wilds, in a glade of its own. I drove him up under cover of dark. He sat in the back. And then I came home, the woman who married the fool who wished for gold. At first, I visited odd times, parking the car a good way off, then walking. You knew you were getting close, golden trout on the grass. One day, a hare hung from a larch a beautiful lemon mistake, and then his footprints glistening next to the river's path. He was thin, delirious, hearing, he said, the music of Pan from the woods. Listen, that was the last straw. What gets me now is not the idiocy or greed, but lack of thought for me, pure selfishness. I sold the contents of the house, and came down here. I think of him in certain lights, dawn, late afternoon, and once a bowl of apples stopped me dead. I miss most, even now, his hands, his warm hands on my skin, his touch. Thank you very much. <clears throat> also from Ovid, less well remembered than Midas, is a character called Tiresias, um, name checked by Eliot in the Wasteland, old man with wrinkled female dogs, which coming from Scotland when I first read, thought 
that meant that Tiresias had pets <laughs> for many years. And as you know, um, Tiresias was probably a middle-aged man, and he went out walking in the woods one day, and on his walk he encountered two snakes attempting to couple. And he didn't like the look of this, so he prevented the snakes doing this by beating them to a pulp with his walking stick, as you would. And um, as they often were, the Greek gods were looking down on the little wood, and they're furious with Tiresias for being so unkind to the snakes. So they punished him then and there by turning him into a woman for seven years. as they would. So I was interested in that little bit, the kind of Rubik cube of sexual mayhem that this seemed to involve, and, and, and wrote a poem in Mrs. Tiresias's voice. And I read the poem before I'd published it, as I have this evening, I just read it off a bit of paper, as a poetry reading in England. Um, Carlisle it was. And I was accosted at the end of the reading by an academic. And she said to me, I did know, didn't I, that in Ovid there was much more to the Tiresias' myth. And uh, my poem didn't even begin to cover this, did it? <laughs> so when the time came to publish, I've called it from, in italics, Mrs. Tiresias. And my idea is to suggest that this poem is merely an extract from a longer, much more knowledgeable <laughs> poem, which it ain't. <laughs> and I get emails sometimes from other academics saying, where can they put their hand on the complete text? <clears throat> so, from Mrs. Tiresias. All I know is this. He went out for his walk, a man, and came home female. Out the back gate with his stick, the dog, wearing his gardening keks, an open-neck shirt, and a jacket in Harris tweed I'd patched at the elbows myself, whistling. He liked to hear the first cuckoo of spring, then write to the times. I'd usually heard it days before him, <laughs> but I never let on. I'd heard one that morning while he was asleep, just as I heard at about 6pm a faint sneer of thunder up in the woods and felt a sudden heat at the back of my knees. He was late getting back. I was brushing my hair at the mirror and running a bath when a face swam into view next to my own. The eyes were the same, but in the shocking V of the shirt were breasts. When he uttered my name in his woman's voice, I passed out. <laughs> Life has to go on. I put it about that he was a twin, and this was his sister come down to live while he himself was working abroad. And at first I tried to be kind, blow-drying his hair till he learnt to do it himself, <laughs> lending him clothes till he started to shop for his own sisterly, 
holding his soft new shape in my arms all night. Then he started his period. <laughs> One week in bed. <laughs> Two doctors in. Three painkillers four times a day. And later, a letter to the powers that be demanding full paid menstrual leave 12 weeks per year. <laughs> I see him still, his selfish, pale face peering at the moon through the bathroom window. The curse, he said, the curse. Don't kiss me in public, he snapped the next day. I don't want folk getting the wrong idea. It got worse. After the split, I would glimpse him out and about, entering glitchy restaurants on the arms of powerful men, though I knew for sure there'd be nothing of that going on if he had his way, or on TV, telling the women out there how, as a woman himself, he knew how we felt, his flirt smile. The one thing he never got right was the voice, a cling peach slithering out from its tin. I gritted my teeth. And this is my lover, I said, the one time we met at a glittering ball under the lights among tinkling glass and watched the way he stared at her violet eyes, at the blaze of her skin, at the slow caress of her hand on the back of my neck and saw him picture her bite her bite at the fruit of my lips, and hear my red, wet cry in the night as she shook his hand, saying, how do you do? And I noticed then his hands, her hands, the clash of their sparkling rings and their painted nails. So much shorter one, Mrs. Aesop. I felt as a child that we were taught at the end of the day in school sitting on the carpet almost 300 times a year on the fables of Aesop. And um, as I grew older and started to write, I was also fascinated by um, the amount even in translation of cliché that Aesop managed, as it were, to deposit behind him. And I'd always felt very disappointed, much as I loved stories about animals, by the, the endings, the, the little morals tacked on the end of the fables. So I, I read as many as I could for this poem. Everything in it comes from Aesop. And I, I didn't want to go on and on. There, there are hundreds of fables. So I tried to swiftly exit the poem. And I made use, if you remember a few years ago, the Bobbit case, which seemed to me to be Aesopian in, in ending. For some reason I can't recall, um, I pitched the whole poem in my mother's voice, as you do. And um, all I could find out about Aesop was that he was a slave, he was famous as a storyteller, and he was tiny. Mrs. Aesop. 
By Christ, he could bore for purgatory. <laughs> he was small, didn't prepossess, so he tried to impress. Dead men, Mrs. Aesop, he'd say, tell no tales. Well, let me tell you now that that bird in his hand sat on his sleeve. <laughs> Never mind the two worth less in the bush. <laughs> Tedious. Going out was worst. He'd stand at our gate, look, then leap. Scour the hedgerows for a shy mouse, the fields for a sly fox, the sky for one particular swallow that couldn't make a summer. The jackdaw, according to him, envied the eagle. Donkeys would, on the whole, prefer to be lions. On one appalling evening stroll, we passed an old hare snoozing in a ditch. He stopped and made a note. And then, about a mile further on, a tortoise somebody's pet creeping slow as marriage up the road <laughs> slow but certain Mrs. Aesop wins the race asshole <laughs> what race what sour grapes what soap purse sour's eared dog in a manger what big fish some days I could barely keep awake as the story droned on towards the moral of itself Action, Mrs. A speaks louder than words. And that's another thing. The sex was diabolical. <laughs> I gave him a fable one night about a little cock that wouldn't crow, a razor-sharp axe with a heart blacker than that pot that called the kettle. I'll cut off your tail, all right, I said, to save my face. That shut him up. I laughed last, longest. My favourite of all the stories, I think, is that of Faust, Faustian Pat, Faust who sold his soul to Mephistopheles, to the devil, in exchange for, I think, 24 years of unimaginable power, wealth, the ability to time travel, to do magic, to have anything he wanted. And at the end of that time, obviously, to pay up with his soul. And here is Mrs. Faust um, recounting this Faustian pact. She isn't a very nice person herself. She met Faust when they were students at university. I know the university. It was St. Andrews. <laughs> and after an on-off, up-down relationship, they, they finally got married. So here is Mrs. Faust telling of this pact. First things first, I married Faust. We met a student, sacked up, split up, made up, hitched up, got a mortgage on a house, flourished academically, BA, MA, PhD, no kids, two towered bathrobes, hers, his. We worked, we saved, we moved again, fast cars, a boat with sails, a second home in Wales, the latest toys, computers, mobile phones, prospered, moved again. Faust's face was clever, greedy, slightly mad. I was as bad. I grew to love the lifestyle, not the life. He grew to love the kudos, not the wife. He went to whores. I felt not jealousy, but chronic irritation. 
I went to yoga, tai chi, feng shui, therapy, colonic irrigation. And Faust would boast at dinner parties of the cost of doing deals out east, then take his lust to Soho in a cab to say the least, to lay the ghost, get lost, meet panthers, feast. He wanted more. I came home late one winter's evening, hadn't eaten. Faust was upstairs in his study in a meeting. I smelt cigar smoke, hellish, oddly sexy, not aloud. I heard Faust and the other laugh aloud. Next thing, the world, as Faust said, spread its legs. First politics, safe seat, MP, right hon, KG. Then banks, offshore, abroad, and business, vice chairman, chairman, owner, lord. Enough? Encore. Faust was cardinal, pope, knew more than God, flew faster than the speed of sound around the globe, lunched, walked on the moon, golfed, Hold in one, lit a fat Havana on the sun. Then, back to hunch, invested in smart bombs in harms. Faust dealt in arms, Faust got in deep, got out, bought farms, cloned sheep. Faust surfed the internet for like-minded Bo Peep. As for me, I went my own sweet way. Saw Rome in a day, spun gold from hay. Had a facelift, had my breasts enlarged, my buttocks tightened. Went to China, Thailand, Africa. Returned, enlightened. Turned 40, celibate, teetotal, vegan, Buddhist. 41, went blonde, redhead, brunette. Went native, ape, berserk, bananas. Went on the run, alone. Went home. Faust was in. A word, he said. I spent the night being pleasured by a virtual Helen of Troy. Face that launched a thousand ships, I kissed its lips. Thing is, I've made a pact with Mephistopheles, the devil's boy. He's on his way to take away what's owed, reap what I sowed. For all these years of gagging for it, going for it, rolling in it, I've sold my soul. At this, I heard a serpent's hiss, tasted evil, knew its smell. A scaly devil hands poked up right through the terracotta Tuscan towels at Faust's bare feet and dragged him, oddly smirking, there and then, straight down to hell. Oh well. Fast will. Left everything, the yacht, the several homes, the Learjet, the helipad, the loot, etc., etc., the lot, to me. When I got ill, it hurt like hell. I bought a kidney with my credit card. Then I got well. I keep Faust's secret still. The clever, cunning, callous bastard didn't have a soul to sell. <laughs> wonderful stuff at this festival. We're very lucky. It's a sonnet, a love poem in the voice of Anne Hathaway, Shakespeare's widow. 
and in his will he left her an old piece of furniture, his second best bed. <laughs> what? <laughs> and uh, many scholars have felt that this meant he didn't love her and wanted to hurt her feelings. Of course, that's impossible. He didn't have that kind of nature. And I think because they married when he was still a teenager, that this old bed would have been their first bed, the, the bed they first got it on, on. <laughs> and she would have known this. So you can see the will as a, a final, sexy, humorous gift. And she's remembering this. Anne Hathaway. Item I give unto my wife, my second best bed, from Shakespeare's will. The bed we loved in was a spinning world of forests, castles, torchlight, cliff tops, seas where he would dive for pearls. My lover's words were shooting stars which fell to earth as kisses on these lips. My body now a softer rhyme to his, now echo, assonance, his touch a verb dancing in the centre of a noun. Some nights I dreamed he'd written me the bed a page beneath his writer's hands, romance and drama played by touch, by scent, by taste. In the other bed, the best, our guests dozed on, dribbling their prose. My living, laughing love, I hold him in the casket of my widow's head as he held me upon that next best bed. <coughs> going to largely read of love now, different kinds. Love poem to my mother who um, was from an Irish family, grew up in Scotland, and then I grew up in England. So there's a kind of layering in the family. I was always enchanted, even as a child, by the difference in her use of English from mine. And this is a little lyric that looks at how my mother spoke. Where we say forever, my mother would say the day and ever where I would say, what's it like? My mother would say, what like is it? And these two four-word phrases um, always stayed with me and come into this poem. The way my mother speaks. I say her phrases to myself in my head or under the shallows of my breath, restful shapes moving the day and ever the day and ever. The train this slow evening goes down England, browsing for the right sky, too blue swapped for a cool grey. For miles I have been saying, what like is it, the way I say things when I think? Nothing is silent. Nothing is not silent. What like is it? Only tonight I am happy and sad, like a child who stood at the end of summer 
and dipped a net in a green erotic pond the day and ever the day and ever I am homesick free in love with the way my mother speaks and from having a mum to being one it's a poem called A Child's Sleep and this is you don't have to be a parent to do this that privilege of, of watching a little child that you're looking after sleeping um, and perhaps you, you stay there for a little while <clears throat> as a carer or a parent or a relative or a babysitter or a, a sibling a child's sleep I stood at the edge of my child's sleep hearing her breathe Although I could not enter there, I could not leave. Her sleep was a small wood, perfumed with flowers, dark, peaceful, sacred, acred in hours. And she was the spirit that lives in the heart of such woods, without time, without history, wordlessly good. I spoke her name, a pebble dropped in the still night and saw her stir, both open palms cupping their soft light then went to the window. The greater dark outside the room gazed back, maternal, wise, with its face of moon. I'm going to read a handful of poems from a book of love poems, Rapture, which sort of follow the course of um, a love affair. And I used for the form of this collection largely the, the sonnet form, sometimes proper sonnets, sometimes broken or fractured sonnets, but always referring back to that, that form. I, I think they're very close to prayers sonnets, they're short, we, we can learn them by heart, and for, for the love poem they're kind of like the little black dress of love poetry, I think. So I went to introduce these poems I wanted in each case to reduce the poem to the, the moment of its occasion or the occasion of its moment um, but I will read them in, in order text I turn the mobile now, like an injured bird. We text, 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 our significant words. I reread your first, your second, your third. Look for your small X, X, feeling absurd. The codes we send arrive with a broken cord. I try to picture your hands, their image is blurred. Nothing my thumbs press will ever be heard. Tea. I like pouring your tea, lifting the heavy pot and tipping it up so the fragrant liquid steams in your china cup. Or when you're away or at work, 
I like to think of your cupped hands as you sip, as you sip, of the faint half-smile of your lips. I like the questions, sugar, milk, and the answers I don't know by heart, yet, for I see your soul in your eyes, and I forget. Jasmine, Gunpowder, Assam, Earl Grey, Salon. I love teas, names. Which tea would you like, I say. But it's any tea for you, please, any time of day. As the women harvest the slopes for the sweetest leaves on Mount Wu Yi. And I'm your lover, smitten, straining your tea. Row. But when we rowed, the room swayed and sank down on its knees. The air hurt and purpled like a bruise. The sun banged the gate in the sky and fled. But when we rowed, the trees wept and threw away their leaves. The day ripped the hours from our lives. The sheets and pillows shredded themselves on the bed. But when we rowed, our mouths knew no kiss, no kiss, no kiss. Our hearts were jagged stones in our fists. The garden sprouted bones grown from the dead. But when we rowed, your face blanked like a page erased of words. My hands squeezed themselves, burned like verbs. Love turned and ran and cowered in our heads. Syntax. I want to call you thou, the sound of the shape of the start of a kiss like this thou and to say after I love thou I love thou I love not I love you because I so do as we say now I want to say thee I adore I adore thee and to know in my lips the syntax of love resides and to gaze in thine eyes Love's language starts, stops, starts, the right words flowing or clotting in the heart. <clears throat> art. Only art now, our bodies, brushstroke, pigment, motif, our story, figment suspension of disbelief the thrum of our blood percussion chords minor for the music of our grief art the chiseled chilling marble of our kiss locked into soundless stone our promises or fizzled into poems page print for the dried flowers of our voice no choice for love, but art's long illness, death. Huge theatres for the echoes that we left 
applause than utter dark, grand opera for the passion of our breath, and the Oscar-winning movie in your heart, and where my soul sang croaking art. And the last one from Rapture is the love poem. Till love exhausts itself, longs for the sleep of words, my mistress' eyes, to lie on a white sheet at rest in the language, let me count the ways, or shrink to a phrase like an epitaph, come live with me, or fall from its own high cloud of syllables in a pool of verse one hour with thee till love gives in and speaks in the whisper of art dear heart how like you this love's lips pursed to quotation marks kissing a line look in thy heart and write love's light fading darkening black as ink on a page there is a garden in her face till love is all in the mind oh my america my new found land or all in the pen in the writer's hand behold thou art fair not there except in a poem known by heart like a prayer both near and far near and far the desire of the moth for the star. Oh, get over it. <laughs> I mentioned the closeness of the sonnet to the prayer so my penultimate poem is a poem called prayer and i often feel jealous of those of us with faith because in times of great stress or difficulty those with faith can pray and perhaps feel they're heard whereas those of us without can't and don't so i assembled images from the everyday world um, as a kind of consolation. And uh, as I say, uh, this is my penultimate poem, Prayer. Some days, although we cannot pray, a prayer utters itself so. A woman will lift her head from the sieve of her hands and stare at the minims sung by a tree, a sudden gift. Some nights, although we are faithless, the truth enters our hearts, that small, familiar pain. Then a man will stand stock still, hearing his youth in the distant Latin chanting of a train. Pray for us now. Grade one piano scales console the lodger, looking out across a Midlands town. Then dusk, and someone calls a child's name as though they named their loss. 
darkness outside. Inside, the radio's prayer, Rocco, Malin, Dogger, Finister. And um, I'd like to finish with a poem I wrote recently for my mother, who, who died four years ago. And um, I was kind of deafened by that, but very recently have been able to perhaps remember her in language. And thank you so much um, for coming, and, and thank you to John for, for helping out on a couple of the poems. And I imagine in this poem that the first time I meet my mother is in fact the moment of her death and then we go back the other way a bit like last post at the beginning of the evening premonitions we first met when your last breath cooled in my palm like an egg you dead and a thrush outside sang it was morning i backed out of the room feeling the flowers freshen and shine in my arms. The night before, we met again to unsay unbearable farewells, to see our eyes brighten with re-strung tears. Oh, I had my sudden wish, though I barely knew you, to stand at the door of your house, feeling my heartbeat calm as they carried you in home. <laughs> That's great, isn't it? <laughs> That's my bloody mother, that is. Is that going to go in all night? Sweet, sweet. Oh, I had my sudden wish, though I barely knew you, to stand at the door of your house, feeling my heart beat calm as they carried you in, home, home and healing. Then slow weeks, removing the wheelchair, the drugs, the oxygen mask and tank, the commode, the appointment cards, until it was summer again, and I saw you open the doors to the gift of your garden. Strange and beautiful to see the roses close to their own premonitions, the grass sweeten and cool and green where a blackbird eased a worm into the lawn. There you were, a glass of lemony wine in each hand, walking towards me always your magnolia tree marrying itself to the May air. How you talked and how I listened, spellbound, humbled, daughterly, to your tall tales, your wise words, the joy of your accent, un-English, dancey, humorous, watching your ash hair flare and redden, the loving litany of who we had been, making me place my hands in your warm hands, younger than mine are now. Then time, only the moon, and the balm of dusk, and you.
my mother. I'm only going to detain you a moment. It's hard to say thank you to somebody who's already left. I just want to point out that Carol Ann's new and collected poems for children is available. It was published especially for the festival and it's available here before it's available elsewhere. She's going to be signing in the tent next door. I think that you would agree with me that only a very magical poet can first of all make the winds calm down though I know we would have sat here even if the tent roof had lifted off, that we could um, rise past all sorts of noise. I think even if somebody had marched down the center aisle with a bagpipe, we would still have stayed in our seats. <laughs>